0: Hello, and welcome to Anger Air, episode 27. I'm here today, uh, Jeff Welpley, and uh, here with our panelists. First, Patrick, JS. Hey, guys. And Amy Knight.
1: Hello.
0: Today, we are lucky enough to have Gleb Bometov here uh, to talk about performance, testing, and everything in between. Gleb, you want to say hi?
2: Hi, everyone. Good to be there. Thanks for inviting me.
0: A couple quick announcements, and then we'll get started. Uh, if you have questions today, please tweet the hashtag ngairquestion, question. And we'll be checking that throughout the show. And next week, um, just as a reminder, we have Auth0 um, with a number of great guys to talk about uh, security. So tune into that. All right, so getting started here Gleb. Thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, First, why don't you give us an introduction to yourself, let us know a little bit about your background.
2: Um, So I work at Kentro, which is a financial analytics company. I've been here almost two years now. It's in Boston and New York City now, and we are about 40 people. Uh, We have a big, angular web app with lots of views, lots of directives, very, very uh, high concentration of charts and data, but it's used by financial companies, banks hedge funds. Uh, before that, I was doing data visualization at MathWorks and then um, computer vision stuff before. So the front end work is pretty recent for me, maybe five years. Uh, but I've been uh, kind of fell in love with Angular. And I've been using it for two years now and uh, kind of never looked back. Yeah. Before that, I used Dojo Toolkit. And that was a good framework, good library but nothing compared to the speed and ease of development that I feel AngularJS gives you.
0: That's awesome. So you've done a lot both at work and, uh, you know, you blog a lot. You've written a lot of open source libraries. I'm curious for your general approach, how do you actually get so much done? Like you and Ben Nadal, I I don't know how you guys do it for just constantly churning out blog posts and libraries and everything like that. So give us a little bit of insight into kind of like like, what do you, what's your day look like?
2: So Ben Adela actually does more than me because he also has a small dog that I assume he takes out for a walk. <laughs> so I actually am a slacker compared to him. Um, it, it's very simple. So whenever I was at different companies, we used to have internal wikis where we would collect, you know, internal knowledge, uh, code samples, um, advice, maybe stuff like that. So I kept writing those at every company. right? And then I would move to a new company, and I would have to start from scratch. And when I maybe joined my previous company, I said, enough, I'm not going to write anything unless it's going to stay public, and I can reuse it over and over so I don't have to redo the same uh, thing. Uh, So that's why I started blogging publicly, right? made my blog available to everyone. And I'm literally writing for myself with some notes for me to remember a couple months later if I go back to the project. How did I do this? How did I do that? And so it kind of grew organically. I'm not sitting after work saying, hey, where's this cool thing I want to tell the world about? I literally, during work, if I have a problem to solve, I will write a blog post reminding me and explaining to myself how I've done something, which has an interesting benefit. Whenever someone new at a company asks me, how do you do that or this, I can literally just send them a link to a blog post. People even joke that for a new employee, the first three months, 50% of my messages to you will be just links to my blog post. But that's it. <laughs> someone asks a question, like, oh, I wrote about this. Here's a link. Just read it and then come back if you have more questions. So it's been super productive. I think blogging during work hours but under your own blog, you know, could be a problem for at some companies, right? Because you're doing something, you know, instead of working. But I consider this very important work. And because we reuse the same knowledge over and over internally, uh, the company, Ken is just happy that I'm doing this. Um, it's literally a note to myself in the future. And luckily, it's a no to everyone else. It's not that difficult, Jeff. I know you're doing a lot, too, so...
0: No, I, I don't do too much. I stare at the wall most of the day. So uh, so let, let's get into some of these topics, So the stuff that you are talk about a lot about on your blog post and, you know, at conferences, everything like that, starting off with performance. And I think Patrick had a, a good question to start off here. Yep.
3: Yeah, so um, for some reason, people are associating React with performance, and Angular 1 being like slow. Um, and what we're hearing is that, um, yeah, can you, can you explain a little bit about that and why people are making these kind of associations?
2: Uh, absolutely. So one thing we have to take into account is what framework does, right? React is just a virtual DOM rendering diff, right, library. It's a utility. It's just computing the difference between a model and the DOM, and then efficiently updating the DOM. Angular does a lot more. Maybe in percentage, I would say that if Angular is 100% in features, then React is maybe 20 25% tops. The way React approaches problems is by giving you a super powerful tool where you don't have to think about what's going on under the hood. You literally can say, here's my data. Just put it in my page. And then Angular figures out how to do it. React, on the other hand, asks you to program the whole thing yourself. And so obviously, if you have to program things yourself, React has easier time figuring out how to update the page efficiently. Do I have to redraw the whole list or just some things changed? We're just giving it providing React with a lot more information. That allows you to update the view more efficiently than AngularJS right out of the box. On the other hand, when I looked at this question, and there are lots of blog posts that say, hey, I'm drawing this giant table, and React is so much faster, I cannot believe anyone's using AngularJS. When I looked at this problem, I usually find the following. People who do this kind of comparison, they are usually more comfortable with React, right? You will never see a person equally experienced in AngularJS and React doing this kind of comparisons. The only one who was really popular was Dave Smith, and he's done it at NGConf, where he showed the same example, a big table, and updating the table in both React and Angular 1 and then Angular 2. Now, his presentation was a little bit controversial because he forgot to take all the delays from the React part. <laughs> but, you know, these things happened. He apologized. He posted updated code. Everyone can actually download his example and run it for all uh, free cases easily. Yeah, it's,
0: it's funny, though, because even though he, he did write a, a correction for that, like uh, most people just saw the initial one and uh, <laughs> that was enough. That's all they remembered, you know. I,
2: it, It it, it was an experience, I agree, Um, especially for him, right? He felt bad about it. He apologized. He posted the correction right away. And he's done live coding on stage, and I think that's what actually was the root cause of the problem. So he has an excellent example that shows a thing, pretty realistic use case, that compares the same apples to apples for both frameworks. A big um, two-dimensional table with uh, custom elements, custom directives inside each cell. And so React was much faster than Angular JS. But the AngularJS code was so simple, anyone could actually write that. That was straight out of the box. Here's some markup. I don't care how my application really works. Just draw a two-dimensional table of elements, custom directives. And so I looked at that, and I tried to figure out, well, is Angular 1 really that slow compared to React? Because it was taking like 20 seconds versus one second for React. And so you just approach this problem you know, step by step. And the cool thing about Angular is that it allows you to fine tune the performance gradually from no optimization right, just let Angular do my stuff. I'm just going to declaratively describe my application, my table, my custom directive. It allows you to fine-tune it and say, I know my my data never changes. Once I draw a table, that's it. So you can change from two-way binding, data binding in Angular, to one-way data binding. And all of a sudden, your application speeds up five times, ten times, right? The second thing that I notice is that we never think about digest cycle you know, too deeply when we start application design. We just say, we have data, sometimes data changes, sometimes user clicks, and then you'll know, care of all the updates, right? But digest cycle kind of runs behind the scenes, and it does its own thing. Well, if you have an application with performance problems, when you're drawing a lot of stuff, and if the stuff keeps updating, like in the table example, where you actually draw different parts at different times, you now start to think about digest cycle. And in that particular application, when we compare React versus Angular, we have to think about the digest cycle, how long it takes, and when do we run it. And you can easily optimize. And we've literally, I think, two options in the code. I disabled, uh digest cycle on every uh, cell update and only ran when all the data was available. And all of a sudden, the application in Angular 1 that ran for 20 seconds started running in, in a second. It's pretty much on par with React.js implementation with just a couple of keywords you know, a couple of options. I don't say this is magical, but the fact that I could write the same application using declarative markup and not be proficient about Elements, how they render, the bindings, how they link to events, right? Angular hides it by default from you, and all of a sudden I can fine tune the performance and get it on par with React, with like two options, I believe, or I, th- I think two line um, change, and it runs at the same time. I think that's incredible, right? The flexibility of the framework is so great that. Straight out of the box, anyone can pick it up, yet I can fine-tune it to be on par with this fastest library in the world, React. And it performs exactly the same, or close to the same. It's incredible. So, wrote a blog post. Uh, Dave Smith came back, and he had a follow-up question. It's fine to compare React performance to Angular performance, during normal, you know, application flow, when application was started and, you know, initial st- dump was created. Where React really shines compared to Angular JS right now is the initial bootstrap. I, was, I had some ideas how to speed it up, but I- even that example with a big table with custom elements, React was much faster at startup compared to AngularJS mainly because AngularJS does a lot more for each custom element than uh, React does. So this is one part that I'm still working on optimization. We'll see how it turns out. I have a presentation on Angular performance at Angular Connect in London in October where I'm going to show what I've been doing so far to tackle Angular Bootstrap problem and a couple of other performance questions. So. Kind of to summarize, AngularJS can perform as fast as React after application has been bootstrapped and during normal interaction. There is still work to be done in AngularJS1 bootstrap phase compared to React. And I think that's where we have to focus our attention. Uh, Patrick, does this answer your question?
3: Yeah, yeah, so essentially, I've been hearing uh, in the community, especially the React community recently, that um, they're saying React is fast enough, um, and that's something that Angular said in the past. And they're, they're recently saying this because there was a, a conversation of, of native being faster than React. There was a blog post about that. Um, so that's, it's, it's kind of interesting seeing that the, whole, the same conversations happen exactly, exactly the same uh, with that community.
2: Uh, This conversation will happen over and over. What I think is interesting to note is that if you optimize the digest cycle, right? Like, this is the primary area for speeding up AngularJS application, right? Like, don't do things that over and over that can be done once, uh, like two-way binding or complex filter expressions, for example. I think the rest of your application performance will be dominated by HTTP calls, right? timeouts, debouncing calls to search and autocomplete, scroll handlers, opacity, painting, expensive style calculations. Not the Angular parts, but the parts that are common to any application framework. I mean, we compare 50 milliseconds to 100 milliseconds, yet it triggers HTTP GET or POST that will take a second. Right? So we're trying to squeeze performance out of a stone when there are much more interesting um, avenues for increasing the overall performance. This is what actually is my latest passion. I kind of stopped profiling individual you know, performance code in JS. Instead, I aim for you know, user presses a button but runs some server computation and then gets and draws result. how long the whole thing takes. Like that's what the user feels, right? They're sitting and, and waiting for a server to get me updated data, and then the frontend to update. And the front end update, after maybe initial tweaks, performs as fast to be negligible. But the server update—that's what you know, matters. And you know, caching, uh, you know, prefetching data—they all become very, very important. I know you guys work on a very important part of. Uh, user-facing performance, which is server-side rendering, right? The initial page, right? The bootstrap, right? Do you see the whole content right away, and then maybe application initializes the rest behind the scenes? I I feel like this is the most interesting thing right now for Angular performance exploration rather than a particular, you know, how fast can I scroll in this table, for example.
1: So I had a question in the notes, and um, I guess now's a good place to ask it. So in uh, another podcast that you're on, you talked about perceived performance, and you also talked about um, like first addressing just bottlenecks in plain JavaScript code, and then looking at this perceived performance, and then looking at the framework you're using. And then I did follow up and went and watched um, one of the talks. I think um, it was at Fluid Comp on this perceived performance. I even watched one of them from 2014. And uh, I think it was Ilya, Ilya Gugorik, if I'm saying that correctly, was talking about um, at Google, they had this blogger application. And they did user testing. And actually, the users were thinking something was wrong with the application because it was rendering too fast. Uh, They were, the users were expecting um, it to take a long time because it was doing a lot of things. It was rendering so fast that they thought there there was a bug. So, like, how much of what you do, do you focus, like, what percentage do you focus on each of these areas?
2: Um, So, uh, I never had this problem. So my users never told me, oh, something's wrong because it's updating too fast. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's just me. I don't know. Maybe you guys.
1: <laughs> I wish we all had this problem. But...
2: I know, but that's a novel complaint. Uh, but uh, you know, we all have like, general guidelines, right? If, if an application reacts somehow, oh, sorry, for a pun, reacts uh, within 100 milliseconds or a couple hundred milliseconds, the users perceive it as responsive, right? If it takes half a second to a second to even respond to user action, then people will feel there is a delay, right? That's why we say users have to perceive application responding. That's why we have a couple of rules of, uh, I guess, UX design to kind of hide this problem. Whenever you click something or whenever you start a long running operation, withdraw a loading, a loader, some kind of feedback. We change the state of a button. We maybe move the rest um, of um, of code into a separate function that we schedule to run. Maybe even web worker. Uh, so, I think the main problem for us is how to take care of uh, slow running operations, right? Rather than you know the fast of too fast-seeming code. Um, Amy, does, does this answer the question or did it go off topic completely?
1: Um, I guess my question was really just like maybe to drive home, um, I think that you prefer looking at just your regular JavaScript code and trying to optimize that, then look at your UX, then look at Angular. Is that what I'm uh, thinking is right, the right. best option?
2: Right, now, now I, I understand what you mean exactly. Um, So, I love profiling code, right, and I have a whole bunch of code snippets which are my go-to tool for finding bottlenecks. These are code snippets that wrap methods, and they start console profile, and then they end profile when the operation is complete. Angular is actually perfectly suitable for this kind of profiling because you, you usually have a scope, and you have a method on the scope that runs when a user clicks something or enters text. And it's very easy to, to wrap that and replace it in live application. So um, I, I do it all the time. And when you see the bottleneck of a flame chart in Chrome DevTools, it's extremely easy to point, you know, this is my longest running function. And what I've been finding over and over again that The top couple bottlenecks are my application code. Not the framework, not the library, not even the paint uh, or refresh, but my code. Maybe there's something long running that runs when I scroll. Things like that, that's what usually kills the application. And I find it over and over uh, that the first bottleneck is probably my code, Uh, which, which is normal, right? The thing that you have to understand is that AngularJS and, to be fair, every major library is tested and used by thousands of people every day. It's looked at for performance bottlenecks by probably tens, or if not hundreds, of smartest people in the world every day. All right? So the chance that there is obvious you know, bottleneck that slows down everyone's application by a factor of 10 is slim. But what's the weakest link? It's probably your code that you just wrote, maybe yesterday, maybe someone else wrote, or maybe someone's using your code, or you using someone else's code. That's the weakest link. The chances are that's the thing that causes a bottleneck. And once you remove those, then you probably have framework-specific code right? that causes bottlenecks. Again, you know, profiling. I,
0: I think you are right, Club, but I, I... The, the criticism that I think um, people that are more even not not just trolls, like people who are actually trying to be somewhat, um, uh, like, actual uh, understanding both sides, the argument that they give is that, yes, you can make these optimizations in Angular, you can uh, avoid these, like, common pitfalls, but it's... Hard, or they, they argue that it's harder to do in Angular, that like it, you more frequently fall into those common pitfalls than in something like React that kind of um, cushions you from that. So do you have any thoughts on that, of um, you know, like beginners that constantly fall over the same pitfalls in Angular?
2: I, I, excellent, excellent point. But you have to think where does a beginner with a React or Angular starts from? With Angular, you start with usually HTML, a mock-up. And then you add the dynamic nature, right? You add scope, you add HTTP gets, all sorts of things. So you actually start with working application with minimal amount of coding, um, maybe from a mock by a designer. And then you add application code, and then you probably hit performance problem as you're trying to show more data. At least that's my case, how I start programming. In React, you have to start with coding. right? There is no easy kind of, hey, let's prototype this, let's see if it's what this is what the user is looking for, right? You have to start writing code right away, which might be great for people who love you know, JavaScript right away, who love um, you know generating code in you know, themselves or markup themselves. So this is starting from completely two different points. If we, for example, plot where the users start on a maybe on a graph or on the axis from markup all the way to performance, Angular starts like almost at the very, very edge, right? You just write static prototype, and then you extend it with directives and like ng-repeat and things, and then custom elements. While in React, you have to start like almost right in the middle and then move to performance, right? So it's completely different starting points. And so to say, yeah, but you know, f- straight out of the box, my React code will be faster it is unfair. I would say you should compare JS code after you made the markup, after you have markup, after you applied the um, you know, directives and custom directives and elements. After you showed it to a customer, he confirmed that this is what he's looking for. And then you maybe improve uh, optimization by looking Am I computing unnecessary filter expressions? Uh, Does my ng-repeat do too much work? And stuff like that. Now you can uh, compare the two frameworks, I think.
0: Yeah, it's funny with that point. I wrote an article, a blog post, about why developers love Angular a couple months ago, and one of the biggest things I I talked about there was that The the thing that you're touching on, that it is easy to get started with, you know, prototype app and everything like that, and that leads to a lot of the popularity and uh, helps a lot with Angular. And uh, it was funny to see, unlike Reddit, the sort of very nice people who usually log into Reddit um, sort of not so nicely talk about uh, how, oh, you know, who cares about the fact that you can write some trivial app or whatever, but, and I, I don't think... Uh, maybe they, they get it as much that that actually does have a big impact. It allows, uh, lowers the bar of entry and that type of thing. So, uh, yeah, I, I think that definitely does
2: help. I, I mean, Jeff, like, if we start writing code right away, right, we usually code something that the customer doesn't need, right? And I think Angular allows us to create a mock that might be functioning very, very little and then extend it and make sure that we're creating something that the customer needs first before we invest in a lot of programming, a lot of testing, a lot of code structure. I think Angular is perfect for that.
3: Yeah, so you bring up a really interesting point with uh, React and Angular. How React, you start in the the middle and then go to performance. In Angular, you go from um, templating on Right. Yeah. So, like, what's yeah. what's interesting and funny, if, um, if anyone remembers the backbone days, this is back when backbone was, like, huge, um, you don't have this, like, collection problem with that because you start in the middle as well. You start with yeah. code, and you're forced to, you know, do your filters before it renders. You're forced to do everything before it renders. And um, it's interesting to see, like, the same exact argument saying, like, oh, this is how you should do it, and it, it makes sense now.
2: So, I I think, on the one hand, the technology evolves. On the other hand, it might, you know, go kind of in circles.
3: The middle rather than from uh, uh, HTML on. So, yeah. Yeah, It was was pretty interesting.
2: Uh, Sorry, Patrick, the connection was breaking up. Uh,
3: Yeah, yeah, my internet's...
0: So, let's let's, uh, move on here, actually, because I I do want to touch on a couple other things that um glad that you're heavily involved with, and this, you know, second major thing is, you know, testing, that yeah. uh, you are an, a major advocate for test-driven development. You've, again, written a lot of libraries and that type of thing, and you actually have a talk coming up next week, I believe, at the uh, New York C- City Angular meetup talking about testing. So uh, can you give us a little bit of preview of what you're going to be talking about there?
2: Uh, so first of all, Jeff, I, I, you're organizer of Angular.js meetup in Boston, which is an excellent meetup, really popular, and I'm sorry but I'm taking this talk to New York City, right? <laughs> I apologize, but we did oh, open man. an office there, so um, I need to well, show you, that. You owe me one. I know, I, I definitely owe you. So I'm tired of crappy code. Like I, I'm tired of things breaking. Right at any random points, so testing is extremely important. Angular JS on its home page actually claims that it's, it's testable, and I, I do believe it's very, very testable. Compared to Dojo or jQuery-based applications, Angular is extremely modular. The dependency injection is an excellent mechanism that makes it very testable. But if you just take Angular JS. Yes, Straight out of a box. If you do Hello World or To Do List, example, and if you try to run write unit tests using Angular Max, you have to write so much boilerplate, right? You have to do things that Angular JS in a production code does for you without you knowing how to do it, like creating controller or you know a scope, right? You never think about those things, but if you write unit tests, all of a sudden you have to do this, and you have to know how to do this. It's, it will really became very, very frustrating. And it doesn't allow you to test easily. Um, so after a while, we created a library first for our internal use. And then we open source it uh, called ng-describe. So it's kind of play on words on, for Angular and behavior-driven describe from Mocha or Jasmine frameworks. So ng-describe tries to take all the boilerplate code that you have to write when you try to unit test and hide it from you. So, mocking modules, uh, injecting providers, you know, uh, spying on functions, HTTP backend, mocking you know modules or particular providers—it's all there. So we and we kept extending ng describe um, if we had you know, some other testing needs. All of a sudden, it became very very popular in. Probably in a couple, like three days, we hit almost 300 GitHub stars, um, like 3K visitors. Um, Google team retweeted uh, the tweet about the library. It's an extremely useful library. We now have um, higher code coverage than at any time in history, and we're writing a lot less boilerplate code uh, when we do unit testing. It's literally became writing unit became the same, or conceptually the same, as writing Angular application. You say, I need these modules, I need to inject these values, I need this controller, and maybe this custom element. And everything happens behind the scenes, and, and it gives it to you. Um, and then you can do all your assertions. I, th- I think there is no equivalent testing library, or testing helper for AngularJS. Uh, There is a new one called bar.js that does a little bit of uh, faking stuff, uh, which is nice, and uh, helps you with injections. Uh, But nothing but as complete and allows you to test and mock and and do everything for you. So we've been extremely happy with what we wrote, and we're extremely happy that people are using it.
0: So does that stand by itself, or does that integrate to other testing libraries, uh, Jasmine, Mocha, whatever?
2: So it sits in between. It's just helpers. It needs Jasmine or Mocha. So literally it it only requires you to have global describe before each after each. That's all it assumes. Uh, So you can use any BDD framework or library with it.
1: So, you know, testing is great and if we can get everyone testing that's all the better. But what about kind of the fine line between like true TDD and then just adding your test after. So I know you know personally um, I try to do TDD when I can um, but it's not uh, like a mandatory thing uh, where I'm at as is like regular testing and like, literally we can't ship our code until it has 100% coverage. Um, But, like I said, the value in doing TDD, I definitely find when I do that that sometimes I'm adding extra tests that aren't needed. Um, I have a test that's not truly, you know, doing what I want it to do. So how do you convince people to spend the time to do true TDD, and what kind of stuff have you found valuable from doing that?
2: I absolutely agree. Uh, The joke we we usually say about testing is, that remember the time you wrote 100 unit tests and got paid $0 for them? Like, nobody (laughs) pays for unit tests, right? And this is true in any language, any application, uh, any company in history. You don't sell unit tests, right? So the, the approach that we take trying to convince people that we have to spend time writing unit tests is that you will have to iterate. Right? In order for you to make money, you'll have to write code, and then you have to iterate until you know you get all the features. The word test never occurs in that sentence. What people implicitly say is that you will have to iterate and keep the code or your application working, right? That's kind of an implicit assumption. But when you rewrite code or when you add a new feature, the previous feature that you showed, it's still working. Right. And how do we guarantee that? Well, by, t- by testing. So, I think if you bring that into conversation, people say, Yeah, you have, okay, write some tests. When do you write the test? Before you write code or after? I think it doesn't really matter. What we've been doing is uh, a hybrid approach. If you write, let's say, uh, Angular filter, right? Very simple, just a, a function, literally. Maybe services, then you can do TDD, test driven development, right? You can write your unit test before you actually write the filter. Or a service. Because it's just a logic, right? It's not state, it's not UI. So it's easier to write it before the fact. Custom directives and custom elements are usually more complicated, and you would have to iterate, and usually your first pass at a custom element or custom directive is not what will be the final product. So you'll have to show it to people, they'll give you feedback, you'll have to add ng class, ng styles, ng ifs, ng show. So usually we write for custom elements a unit test, a simple unit test, after the fact. Okay? So for us it's a combination. We're not, uh, I would say, religious about that. But we kind of try to write unit tests. We kind of also do maybe a lazy testing. And that means we'll write or we'll create an application, right? Part of this application will be this new feature. We'll show it to the customer maybe we'll get feedback, and only when the customer says, yes, I like it, it will stay in, then we'll, we'll look at that and we'll say, do we need to refactor for long-term maintenance? Do we want to write a couple of tests just to make sure it works from now on? So we don't write it like immediately, we write it after we know the feature will stay in. And then that's what is really needed.
1: Of course, yeah, that definitely makes sense. We would want to go writing tests before the feature is approved by, the, right. by your client. But what about two... Um, you know, like, going through the extra effort to rip out logic from your view so that you can test it in the controller. Like I know um, some of like, the people I talk to, um, you know, there's like that, you know, it's easy to just go throw a bunch of stuff in your view. Like, yeah, it's bad for other reasons, too. But, you know, you think it's worth the extra effort to rip that stuff out so that you can test it more easily, like, in unit tests rather than, uh, you know, in an end test?
2: Yeah, uh, we we hit this problem all the time. We, it's it's a very tempting right just to throw HTTP GET into controller and be done with it. It's very easy to hardcode URL rather than inject it from you know through a config file into your controller. Uh, we have to constantly fight it. Uh, I don't think there is any magic bullet, but we do try to point during diffs when we do code reviews when before we code gets committed is, hey, you're mixing HTTP gets with your controller. Or like this, you're doing a lot of data massaging before you actually you know put it in a, in a scope so that when you put it in dump, maybe it could be a separate service, right? Maybe you don't write the unit test for everything right away, but moving it separately into a separate part uh, makes it easier to unit test it later, right? Uh, so again, it, I think it's only self-discipline inside the company and and trying to say during the code review hey maybe split was apart it will be easy in the long term
0: so what's your feeling on test coverage that um, you know there's some people that are religious about trying to get to 100% unit test coverage uh, and other people who just you know don't Care about it as much. They care more about the end to end tests or something that's more real based. Uh, because when you're doing unit tests, you have to end up doing a lot of mocking. And is that real testing if you're mocking everything out? Um, it's kind of debatable. Yeah. So, you know, what, what's your feeling on, on test coverage?
2: Well, we shoot for 145%. No, we're just... no, done. <laughs> uh, well, right now, our code base that covers a lot of applications is probably 50% overall. In unit tests, which is very low number, I personally believe. On the other hand, there are really two variables that I think are important. One is code coverage, and second is code complexity. If you can easily review code, right, just to kind of figure out are there any weird logic here, does it have to be exhaustively tested, maybe you don't have to test that code. And I know it's a cheating exercise, but at the same time, think about composing processing functions using, let's say, uh, helper libraries like Lodash or Ramda. You can literally write a piece of code that cleans up your data, yet never have custom logic. It's all kind of Lodash filter, Lodash map, Lodash filter, and things like that. So what we try to do is to say during code reviews is, I can understand what this code does, it seems very, um, how should I say it, less error prone as, as opposed to if you wrote it yourself. So maybe you don't have to unit test it. So we try to kind of select which parts of the code really require testing and which ones don't. So we kind of can get away uh, with less than 100%. The second you know, note is that even getting 100% means nothing. I can, it's like halting problem. I can give you a piece of code that if you test once, all every line will work. Yet if you run it a second time, it will crash. And it's easier, right, to write code like that. Uh, think about anything that involves regular expression. You can test it, it will be 100%, yet you give it a different uh, input, and all of a sudden, all hell breaks loose. So just getting to 100% coverage does not guarantee much, unfortunately. And so that's what we kind of figure out, that you need to concentrate on lowering the overall code complexity. And that's static code analysis tools, like code AC, uh code climate. In addition, unit tests. So unfortunately, it's not one bullet. It's two bullets.
0: Well, and also because of what you're talking about uh, is why I believe uh, you do something that I think is quite unique or at least rare, which is to leave runtime assertions in your production code. A lot of people use that during development to uh, try to find issues and that type of thing, but most people rip it out of their code or have it, you know, kind of during the build process take it out so that it doesn't cause performance issues. But you specifically keep it in your production code. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, why that is and how it's helped you?
2: So I come from C, C++ uh, background, where you had assertions that were a macro and then in production code they'll be completely removed. Right now we take the completely opposite approach. We write runtime assertions, kind of imagine your console assert, some kind of condition, and then arguments uh, to throw if there is an exception. And we leave them in production code. And we find them incredibly, incredibly useful. Basically, we have a real-time crash reporting service, Sentry, which is very popular open source tool that connects very well with uh, regular JavaScript or with Angular, uh, error handler. So it catches anything, but if, if any error thrown if there is a crash. During unit testing, you usually, maybe subconsciously, try to take the easy path, right? Try not to break it. And that's human. And your users always find a weird kind of data combination of actions that really exercises code paths that you you could not foresee. So we actually find it very useful to catch those errors runtime exception as early as possible and transmit as much information as possible we we hate when we have a sentry error and it says undefined is not a function and the stack trace is is garbage maybe it was ie10 right so instead of that we kind of add lots of assert condition and all all the relevant information so that when we look at sentry we can usually determine what happened just by looking at the error Right? Without even going into the code and looking around or looking at the stack trace, we usually think we get errors like you know, date format is invalid and then the date that the user enters, for example. And we're like, oh, we never expected anyone to enter just month and a day. We always expected month, day, year, for example. So we created a library that's open source under my uh, GitHub. Uh, the library is called lazyS that stands for lazy assertions. (laughs) And the the only cool thing about that library is that the first argument is a predicate, right? It's true or false. But everything after that are just arguments. You don't concatenate. You don't form error message yourself like you do with every other library. It does it for you. If a predicate is false, then it will concatenate the strings. It will uh, stringify objects. So, you know, the performance-intensive part so you don't pay a performance penalty every time you check an assertion. So whenever we profile application, but lazy assertions, running them, was never a bottleneck. Because you know, just calling a function and checking true or false and passing arguments is almost no performance penalty. Like, it's minimal. Only if you do string concatenation, then you pay a huge performance penalty. So that's why we wrote lazy ass.
0: Yeah, you know, uh, it's funny because I don't think, you've told me this, uh, talked about runtime assertions in the past with me, but uh, I don't think I've appreciated it until I recently you know, went live with uh, one of our projects and using Sentry, and I got a lot of the errors like you are mentioning where yeah. you just don't get the stack traces or whatever else, and it is extremely frustrating and hard to track down and stuff like that, so I, I can uh, totally see the usefulness of having those runtime assertions.
2: Yeah. And we use the same library of assertions and predicates in our unit tests. So we never have to remember, oh, should I use like expect to be um, because it's production code? Can I do that? We always use the same predicates, the same assertions in both places. So we never have to remember the difference.
0: Okay, uh, we're getting near the end of our time, so um, I just wanted to have one final question, and then we'll do our picks and kind of wrap up. Um, you know, one thing I wanted to make sure I asked and is uh, something that I saw that you, you've uh, said before. You know, online about um, how you uh, love Aurelia, and you've you've obviously our te- technologists use a lot of different stuff. Um, you've th- you've started to look at Angular two, I'm sure. So basically, I'm going to put you on the spot right now, and I want you to pledge your allegiance to Angular 2. And forget about all this other React, so you know really stuff. Uh, so uh, let, let's hear you, you say it, and uh, what are you going to do, basically, uh, in
2: the future? So we have to do like, you know, can a point A, like, secret symbol or something when you pledge? <laughs> um, so just to be, you know, transparent, we use Angular AngularJS. We brought everything up to, you know, using custom directives. We don't use controllers. We, we pretty much stay up to date. We also run a bunch of React stuff for our charts and graphs. Like, React pretty much replaced a lot of custom D3 logic. So and it plays very nicely with Angular. We also use uh, reactive extensions, RxJS for Angular, so to pipe the data. So. Even if you wanted, we could not go to Aurelia anytime soon or easily, right? We don't want to rewrite everything. At the same time, let's be fair. Angular 2 is not Angular 2. It's not the second version of Angular 1 that we all use right now, right? If we were kind of following semantic versioning, it would be probably Angular 10, or should have been Angular 10, or should have been a completely different name, right? We kind of feel right now that Angular 1 feels slightly dated, you know, having its own module system, for example, having to recreate, um, you know, controller as syntax objects. We're looking at Angular 2. We love ES6. And we'll see how it develops. Definitely, we will continue using Angular 1. And we hope that Angular 2. Kinda is updated, ES6 compatible. You know, plays nicely out of the box with Webpack and stuff like that. So I will pledge it.
0: Very but diplomatic, will, very diplomatic answer.
2: I will definitely pledge it, right? And I will work hard to make sure that we have solve all the you know path upgrade problems, inter- integration with other libraries. But I would say Aurelia feels a lot closer to being Angular 2. With Angular 2 feels right now.
0: OK. Well, to be continued, we'll uh, have you back on in uh, six months once Angular 2 is out there and get your uh, thoughts and where you're at. Absolutely. OK. Um, let's uh, go to uh, Amy. Can you check uh, the Twitter um, NGR questions?
1: Yep. So we have one already. And after that, I'll go check for more. But the first one, um, they are saying, Uh, 100% test coverage means a lot if you cover all equivalent classes when you write tests. What do you think about that?
2: Um, So what does it mean by equivalence classes?
1: I am not 100% sure. I was hoping someone else knew.
2: (laughs) So unfortunately, I don't understand the meaning of this question uh, very well.
1: Yeah, Uh, I'm a little unclear as well.
2: But as I pointed out before, 100% probably means if.
1: Maybe, maybe they're meaning um, like different services as well. I'm not sure, or things that your head would rely on. I'm not positive. Jeff, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's,
0: fun, it's it's funny because the first time I read this, I thought I understood it, but then uh, I I think basically, if I had to interpret this, uh, it's just that you know you were saying I think maybe that 100% test coverage isn't that important, but um, he's trying to say that, you know, if you – it's one thing if you uh, have, like, 50 versus 60% is maybe who cares, but if you achieve, like, 100%, that's actually saying something because you've managed to actually figure out, like, every path, and, and that is kind of quite an effort. I mean, maybe uh, does that have extra value to achieving that number, or is it just totally arbitrary?
2: I, I think covering every path, right, like if else branch, is a good, good strategy, uh, except, again, if you use third-party library, if you use regular expressions, right, the data coverage or types of input, that becomes, um, you know, a problem. And we're actually working on a library that will compute the data coverage rather than path coverage. Let's say you parse date. You run through our preprocessor, kind of like Istanbul equivalent, and then it will tell you, this is the dates that you covered in your unit test. And then you can look and say, oh, we haven't covered anything be- before 1970, for example. So try to figure out data coverage as opposed to just statement or branch coverage. Um, I, like that.
1: I like what you said earlier about not just going by coverage, but there's a lot of other tools out there to look at metrics. And then again, too, I don't know, this might be a given for a lot of people that have been doing this for a long time, but for me, um, you know, I haven't been doing this all that long. Uh, I always try to uh, just write out the different assertions, like literally the different if blocks that I'm going to write um, based on what I've just done or if I'm doing TDD based on you know what it needs to do and then go and fill in the test and then look at my coverage to see what I've missed. Because if right. I just rely on the coverage then I kind of end up looking at that as you know, the deciding factor about what I'm covering rather than actually thinking through, you know, what are the edge cases, things like that, rather than just, like, is the code being exercised?
2: I think you can achieve 100% uh, code coverage very very easily. And I'll tell you a secret. In your code, a comment, Istanbul, ignore start. (laughs) That's it. it. The whole thing will be (laughs) covered.
0: Nice, nice. Okay, we got to wrap up, guys. It's been really fun today. Um, just a, a couple quick announcements. Next week we're going to have uh, another awesome show with Auth0, Martin, Gonto, uh, Jeff, a lot, a lot of other, not me, uh, Jeff Goodman, <laughs> um, which is going to be a great conversation on security in Angular apps. And uh, if you have questions for, for Gleb that might, maybe didn't come on here, um, continue to post them. Uh, I'm sure Gleb will be happy to kind of answer anything that you may have uh, after the show as well. Uh, so let's do picks. Amy, you want to start us off?
1: Uh, sure. So I mentioned earlier these different, like, fluent cop talks on perceived performance. So those are going to be my picks. There's one from 2015. That was a keynote, um, which is pretty good. Uh, they show a cool little demo of, um, you know the different speed there's someone using uh, a tablet and showing how the UI is responding to touch and that's kind of interesting to see uh, you know the different lags and how that's perceived. But then I like I said, I really like this blogger example. I thought that was really funny. Um, so the talk from 2014 on the topic also was pretty good. so I'll put both of those in the, uh, on the page up on Google.
0: Cool. Uh, I will go next, and uh, glad we'll get the honor uh, to do it at the end. So I have two picks, uh, the first of which being I, I forgot to mention, but um, Kent C. Dodds is not here today because he is in route to Midwest JS uh, to give a talk there, so I'll post a link uh, to that, and we wish him all the best. He'll be back next week. Um, Patrick, by the way, had to drop off. He had, he had some connection issues. Um, the other thing, uh, my other pick, is an awesome service that I just started using last week and I would highly highly recommend it to everyone uh, listening uh, it's called spot.email if you go to spot.email it basically allows you to set up um, arbitrary email addresses so you have you know a domain and then when you sign up for any website you could just put any arbitrary string at your domain um, that you have set up through spot and then all those emails get routed through Spot and then filtered to you. So you can set up Spot as sort of this central source of filtering out all the garbage. And because you can set up arbitrary strings for like every single service that you sign up for, you can kind of track you know, who actually spams, you know, uh, sells your um, email to like other spammers and that type of thing. Uh, so highly, highly recommend that. Uh, Gleb.
2: Excellent. So my pick is a book. It's excellent book. I read probably half of it. Yes. Uh, AngularJS in Action by Lucas Rubelke from Manning Publishing. It's pretty thin, but he explains a lot in every page. And I think this is an excellent book for beginners or advanced or anyone in between. Excellent AngularJS book. So that's my first pick. And second. I think at the end of September will be Angular JS Remote Conference. Um, Jeff, do you, know, do you want, right. yeah, do you want to talk about that? Right. It? It's an excellent idea. You don't have to travel. So pretty you know, good environment. Um, I think right now, the first couple of speakers are very, very good, but we're confirmed. And the call for proposals is open. So Angular Remote Conf.
0: Yeah, it's a great pick. Uh, Kent has signed up. Uh, Lucas actually has signed up as well. Uh, I know a bunch of other people that are in the process of uh, submitting some proposals and everything like that, so definitely check that out. Yeah. All right. Great. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. Uh, See you next week.
2: Thank you, guys. Bye. Bye.